Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine Podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, we're going to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy, editor and publisher of Family Tree Magazine. We'll cover the latest happenings in the genealogy world with the genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad. In our top tip segment, we'll be looking at the historical significance of our ancestors' hairstyles with Maureen Taylor, the photo detective. And we'll be spotlighting another terrific website in the 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots list. And in our Best of Family Tree Magazine segment, we'll discuss economic history with Jim Beidler, author of the article Financial Aid from the April 2006 issue of the magazine. There's lots to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. Well, it's time once again to check in with Allison Stacy, publisher and editorial director of Family Tree Magazine. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Hey, I understand that you have a brand new CD that's just been released that maybe could help us out with our European research. So tell us all about it. Yeah, the Family Tree Passport to Europe is our brand new CD, and it's a compilation of guides to tracing your genealogy in all over Europe. It's got 22 different countries and areas covered. Not every guide is um, focused on a specific country. Some of them are a little bit broader, covering multiple countries or a different region, but they're all geared toward how-to information to help you trace your roots. Oh, neat. Now, are these a variety of articles that you've pulled out of past issues, or, or what are we looking at as far as the guides? Yeah, basically they are. Um, those of you who are readers of the magazine will um, know that we typically will cover a different heritage group in every issue, right. um, Irish roots, German roots, um, all the way down the line to even more obscure or less familiar ones. But Europe is obviously a very common place where um, our ancestors have come from, and a lot of people are interested in being able to make that leap across the pond. And so this CD gathers up some of our most useful articles that will help our readers and listeners do that. How great to have them all in one place, because I know sometimes, you know, as you're going through your research, all of a sudden you find you have moved with a family into a new country that you weren't maybe researching when a year and a half ago or two years ago, you read an article about that country. So having them all together means you can just tap right back in and find the one you need and and get up to speed. Sure, and another benefit that isn't always immediately obvious is that because historically boundaries change so much, especially in um, certain parts of Europe, that you know you may associate your ancestry with a particular country and find out that for part of that history when your family was there, they were actually in a different country because the, the boundaries changed, somebody got taken over or got their independence. And so um, you may find that you need to look at different areas and understand that history and understand those changes that took place. And by having all the different guides together, you can easily access that information, like you said, all in one place. Exactly. Oh, and there were a lot of changes. I know I've, I've found that situation doing my German research, you know, and um, seeing them kind of move the boundaries around and having to kind of keep track. And all of a sudden you think, well, I'm researching a German ancestor, but now we're in Poland, <laughs> you know, and they're exactly. not Polish. So it's it, that's all really terrific information. So I understand that you may even have a way that our listeners 
would be able to win a copy of this Europe CD. What do you got for us? You bet. Um, well, we would really appreciate some feedback from our listeners on what kind of topics that you're interested in hearing us cover um, in the podcast and in articles in the magazine and on our website. And so basically we'd like to offer up a little contest to give everybody a little bit of incentive to share their feedback. And so for those of you listening, if you would like to share an article idea or whatever area that you happen to be researching right now or feel like you need some help with, please share that with us via email, and we will choose one lucky listener to win a copy of our Family Tree Passport to Europe. Fantastic. So if they want to enter the contest, they can email ftmpodcast at gmail.com. That's FTM for Family Tree Magazine. And that's ftmpodcast at gmail.com. Send in your ideas for Allison um, so that the uh, editor of the magazine and the podcast will have a really good idea of what it is you're looking for, what you want to be able to learn about next to be able to move your research forward. Um, send that idea in on the email, and then you will be entered to win one of the Family Tree Magazine Passport to Europe CDs. Yeah, and be sure to do it right away because the deadline is April 30th, 2009. So go ahead and send us those ideas via email. Let us know what you want to see in the magazine and on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. Uh, exciting to take a look at the, the new passport to Europe. I do actually have a couple of new countries I've got to start working on, so this will be a great resource. And we'll look forward to hearing from all of you listeners as far as your ideas for the magazine and the podcast. And uh, we'll be announcing the winner of the contest in next month's podcast episode. So be sure to tune in for that. Thanks so much, Allison. Thank you, Lisa. In today's News from the Blogosphere segment with the Genealogy Insider and Managing Editor, Diane Haddad, she has the rundown on the new records that have been released recently and some great records from the 1930s and 40s. Hi, Diane. Welcome back. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great and um, excited to hear about you've been blogging like crazy on the uh, Genealogy Insider blog. And I just I love your blogs because you're out there putting out new information, but you're also kind of giving us your input on it, which I think really helps. And before we start, I want to congratulate you because I know that the Genealogy Insider made it on to um, the top blogging list from pro genealogists, didn't it? It did, one of the 25 most popular blogs. So we're excited about that, and I hope it's not only popular but also helpful to people. We do try to um, answer questions that people might have, just try to anticipate what they might ask about. Exactly. And I'm not surprised to see it on the list because, as I say, you're not only passing along great information, but you're also giving your own input and critiques and, and just ideas. There's really great content there. So for those of you listening, if you haven't checked into the Genealogy Insider blog, you should because it's a wonderful way to stay up to date on what's new in genealogy on a daily basis. Thank you very much. To that end. Yes, what's new? There's lots of new records coming out, yeah, right? Yeah, they're just adding them right and left. And so I did a little roundup um, recently of what new records are on the various websites. So first I have a couple of freebies. The Western Maryland's Historical Library is adding um, records from Washington County, Maryland. They have other records on there as well, but recently they've added some tax records from Washington County. 
and some sheriff's prison records and some court records. So that's digital indexes and the images. So you want to go wonderful. check those out if you're from, if you have ancestors in the area. And then Family Search, of course, keeps adding states to the 1920 U.S. Census Index, and that does not have the record images. So you search an index, and it's a, it's a really high-quality index. So if you've had trouble finding people in that census, this index might be able to help you out a little better. And they have also been adding some Arkansas marriages. So they have um, four counties so far in Arkansas. Oh, that's what I need. Yes. I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> so, well, they're adding, um, they have Clay, Crittenden, Deshaies, and Monroe County so far. So look for more to come. Great. And um, footnote, as people might have heard, added the 1930 census to a Great Depression collection. And they also, with that, revamped the site. Um, they changed some of the search features, and they redesigned the homepage to make it a little bit more streamlined and easier to find what you're looking for. So people can read more about that on the Genealogy Insider blog. And besides the 1930 census, they've added some Cherokee Indian records, and um, they keep adding those Civil War Union service records. Wow, lots of good things going on there. And are you finding that the the new design make, it does indeed make it a little easier to navigate? It does for me. Um, yeah. Before there would be a couple different places where you could click to go to the same place on their website, and they've winnowed that down. So now it's clear, click here to go to this place. Oh, great. So it's a lot more streamlined. And then I understand that Ancestry is putting out some city directories that are even a little more recent mm -hmm. in, in nature, which I love because, of course, we only have the earliest census being 1930, so any records that come after that are awesome. Tell us about what they've got. They have been adding some 1940 city directories, indexes and images of the pages from the directories, and it's great for finding, um, you can find relatives who might still be alive today or their descendants or neighbors of your ancestors so for me, it's exciting because the people who I remember growing up would be listed in those city directories. Yes. And and this is both an index and the images themselves. Mm -hmm. So this is wonderful. You're going to be able to look at the page and not only see them, but maybe check out some of their neighbors. Right. And city directories haven't been easily available. So um, this is a big step in making them more accessible to people. It's wonderful to see them embracing the city directories because it's just like the census. There are so many. It's it's probably a very daunting task to take it on, but I'm really glad to see that they are, mm -hmm. particularly these more current records. Yeah. That's wonderful. Absolutely. Well, lots of wonderful new records to, to tap into and to help us, you know, keep making progress. Again, congratulations on um, your recognition of the Insider blog, and we look forward to just staying up to date with the, in the coming months by uh, checking out the, your, your blog. Thanks so much, Diane. Thank you. Are you having a good hair day? Well, it's a good hair day for your ancestors because Maureen Taylor, the photo detective, is here to talk about her article, Splitting Hairs, that is featured in the May 2009 issue of the Family Tree Magazine. Welcome back to the show, Maureen. Hi, Lisa. How are you today? I'm doing great. You know, I was going through this article. It's it's absolutely fascinating. The photographs alone are mesmerizing, but... um. 
I know that you, as the photo detective, you know, you comb through photographs and we've thought about things like looking at clothing and jewelry and the things that appear in the photographs with our ancestors as being clues to time frames and locations and that kind of thing. But here in this article, you have focused on their hairstyles. So tell us, what can our ancestors' hairstyles tell us about them and uh, what was going on in their lives at that time? Oh, Lisa. I can't tell you all of the fascinating information I found researching, you know, historic hairstyles. I was stunned with some of the information I found, such as, here's a, here's a highlight for you. Most women from the mid-19th century to the early 20th century wore hair pieces. Oh, I mean, all those huge, beautiful do's were not all their hair? Not necessarily. They were highly enhanced with either hair pieces. They even had little combs with bangs for the 1880s. So you just kind of stuck the comb in the front of your hair, and then the bangs hung down on your forehead. And you can spot these things by looking at texture of hair and also color. I have a, a beautiful picture of a bride from the 1870s in my own collection, and she's blonde, but her hair piece is brown. Oh, wow. Yeah, very interesting. And then in the around the turn of the century, you know, 1900-ish, you know, those big, big, puffy hairstyles with the big hats on their heads, there were forms that they wore around their head and then moved the hair up and over the form to make the hairstyle that large. Oh, wow. You so that? just yeah. that the hair on the outer outer side of it is their hair, but everything underneath is the form, which makes it look large. Oh, my gosh. Exactly. Here's the best part. Men and hair products. In the 1850s and 60s, men had their own line of hair products, and they had curling irons for curling their hair. Oh, you're kidding. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you wonder, because you see some of these amazing do's, and, and um, you just think, that can't just be a natural kink in their hair. No, it wasn't. It was placed in their hair. And, you know, where did all this fake hair come from, Mm -hmm. those false hair? It was actually real hair if you could afford it. If not, they used other things like horse hair, for instance. Oh, my gosh. I know. But most of the hair came from Europe. And so peasant women in, I guess, what did I find, Germany and Italy primarily would cut their hair, and then tons and tons of it would get shipped to America. Wow. So was this the whole thing about hair products and curling irons? And Is this really the upper classes we're talking about, the folks no. with some money? No. Really? This is everyone. I mean, if you wanted to copy the style, you found a way to do it. So like horse hair, if you couldn't afford it, or if you can't afford the, the fancy hair product, you know, you'd use bear grease or some other kind of oil look back your hair. Oh my gosh. Now, Can you imagine? And people only wash their hair infrequently. Now, I read mm. something recently, um, even before I found this article, and it said something about, it could have been once a month. I mean, it, it could have been once a month. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so with these various hairstyles, it's what does it tell you about the, the time frame? These fancy hairstyles are not saying that this is just a wealthy person, so that's a good no. thing to keep in mind. But I assume there were definite trends then, just along with the clothing, that would help you identify the time frame of a photograph. Absolutely. You know, you have to add up all the clues in the photographs. You know, I talk about that all the time. Yeah. But hair is very interesting because it tells you, it give, there are styles. 
stylistic differences from time period to time period. And so you can sort of place that hairstyle in a time frame. But what happens is as you get older, you tend to hold on to your hairstyle from your younger years. And so you often see photographs of much older men and women wearing hairstyles from their youth. Ah, yes. Which is very interesting to look at. And it tells you something about them because it shows that they're, you know, set in their ways, a little conservative, um, really outrageous fashionable hairstyles, you know, where they take the hairstyle to its extreme limits. gives you a sense, in my mind, that the person who's wearing that hairstyle imagines themselves as very fashionable and very fashion conscious. So when the ladies were bobbing their hair, let's say in the 20s, if you saw a photograph of a 60-year-old woman with a bob, you knew that, you know, she had some kick in her, right? She had some kick in her because here's the thing. Around the turn of the century with all those big hair styles and hair pieces, husbands and boyfriends went on a campaign to get women to have more natural hair instead of enhanced hair. And then the bobbing came in. And husbands actually divorced their wives over the bobbing of their hair. Really? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That must have been a huge shocker to their system after all those long locks for so many years. It was fascinating. It was fascinating. Who would have thought that hair was so controversial? Wow. Well, we all know that, uh, we all know what a good hair day and a bad hair day is, and we're all very keenly aware. It's interesting. It's just fascinating to hear that it was that big a deal 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And there were style icons for hairstyles, like Queen Victoria's hairstyle, for instance, or Lily Langtree, the stage actress. So just like we aspire to look like the famous people that are living today, our ancestors aspired to look and, and copy the styles worn by their favorite people. Well, if those of you listening would be interested in uh, learning more about hairstyles, seeing some of these amazing photographs, and maybe comparing them to some of the photographs that you have of your ancestors, you may learn quite a bit about the fashion and their attitudes and the time frame the pictures were taken. The article is called Hair Apparent, and again, it's in the May 2009 issue. Maureen, this was terrific. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Lisa, just before I go, oh, yeah. if anyone's interested, they can watch my video cast on the Family Tree Magazine YouTube channel. I'm not sure what the address is, but it should link from the homepage, and it's a whole video on hairstyles. Oh, that's right. Did you have some people who had sent in some examples? And had so many people send in examples. So many. Wow. Well, I, I believe if you go to YouTube and just do a search on Family Tree Magazine, uh, it'll get you to their channel, and then you can watch Maureen's video. Oh, that's a great idea. Oh, thanks so much again, Maureen. Thanks. Find My Past is making it easier than ever to research your U.K. ancestry. And with millions of family history records online, it's no wonder that the website made it onto the Family Tree Magazine's 101 Best Websites list. So to tell us more about the website, I am really happy to welcome to the show Deborah Chatfield, Marketing Manager of FindMyPast.com. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Thank you, Lisa. Hello. Well, it's great to be talking to you. Uh, are you located in England? Yes, I'm, I'm sitting in London at the moment. Yes, that's where we're based. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for uh, staying a little bit late today. I'm calling you first thing in the morning, but I'm sure it's the end of your work day. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. No, it's, uh, it's very exciting that uh, that we've been uh, that we've received one of the uh, 
one of the awards. Very excited about that. Well, by any chance, if there's anybody listening who isn't familiar with Find My Past, I want to make sure that they are by the end of this episode. So maybe we could just start off by having you give us a, a quick overview of what it is that you offer on FindMyPast.com. Okay, well, um, we've been around since uh, April 2003, which is when we became the first people to put the complete birth, marriage, and death indexes for England and Wales online, uh, and they go back to 1837. Uh, and we were actually awarded uh, the Queen's Award uh, for that, so that's, that's something we're, we're very proud of. Um, but since then, we've added well, over 650 million more records to our website, so we now have um, censuses for England and Wales going from 1841 to 1901. Uh, just this year, we've also added the 1911 census, which uh, is a project we're still working on, and, and that's been very exciting. It's actually the, the largest family history project that uh, uh, the National Archives here in England has ever worked on with a, uh, with a company such as ourselves. Um, we have a uh, military collection, we have World War I records, World War II, um, but we even go back to uh, the Boer War and, and Waterloo. Uh, and we have uh, a very large parish record collection, which uh, stretches back to 1538, and that's something we've been working on over the last 18 months with the, uh, the Federation of Family History Societies, which is the umbrella organization in the UK for, for local family history societies. So uh, quite, a, quite a lot of records there for... Uh, people to uh, to go online and uh, and search for their ancestors in Exactly. I mean, it's it's amazing for folks who have British ancestors prior to Find My Past coming online. It could have been a little bit of a daunting task. You had to dig through the microfilm, but you've brought so much right into our own homes. Um, I know in just talking with folks, they're just making all kinds of progress that they in such a quick amount of time. It's amazing. And one of the things I've noticed is that you have, um, as you said, that partnership with the National Archives. And it, it looks to me from everything I see on their website that they are very pro-genealogist. And um, how did that come about? And you said that that was a, one of the first and largest projects that they kind of partnered with a, a company on? It's, it's the largest one, certainly, yes, and that's, that's mainly because the 1911 census is such a huge resource. Um, it's, it's actually occupied over two kilometres of shelving at the National Archives, and uh, we've scanned 16 million images. Um, and you know, compare it with the earlier 1901 census, which was only 1.5 million, so it's over 10, 10 times the size of the censuses we've seen before. Um, but yes, I mean, we've, we've worked with the National Archives on earlier projects, um, for example, the uh, outbound passenger lists, um, which stretch from 1890 to 1960. And these are handwritten lists completed by shipping clerks when people boarded vessels going to destinations like the States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Um, and, um, and that was one of the first projects we did with the National Archives. And basically what happens is um, the National Archives has, you know, vast numbers of, of, of resources and um, their policy is to digitize as much as they possibly can so that they can be preserved for future generations and so that people all around the world can get online and search these records easily. Uh, so they put these projects out to tender and uh, we, uh, we uh, you know, entered a, a bid and um, were awarded the contract in, in those cases. So it's, uh, it's uh, been, been great, great experience working closely with the National Archives, getting those projects online. Oh, that's tremendous. And you mentioned the 1911 census. Tell us about that project, because I know, as you said, it's huge. I've already used it, <laughs> and I yeah. was just so excited. And so tell us about kind of 
where you are in that process and what we can look forward to in the coming months? Well, what we've done so far is we've uh, we've done about ninety percent of the records so far. So we've um, we've scanned them and transcribed them and put them online, and that's ninety percent of the records for England. Uh, so we've still got a, a couple more English counties to go up, um, and in fact they're going up um, this week. Actually, in fact, uh, as we speak, we've uh, we've sent them to go live. So that's that's very exciting. That'll be all the English counties on live. Um, so uh, then we're, we're working on Wales currently as well, all the Welsh counties. Um, and of course, because there we have sort of bilingual issues as well, because some of the forms were filled out in Welsh, so we're having to uh, to transcribe those too. Um, so they'll be going up in the next couple of months. Um, as will the records for the British Army overseas. It's the very first time that they've been included in the census for England and Wales. So if uh, if anybody had. Uh, ancestors working in, in the military overseas in 1911, then they'll uh, they'll still be able to find them on the England and Wales census. Uh, and what we're also doing is um, scanning some, some more images. What the National Archives have asked us to do is to produce a complete facsimile of the entire census. So we're even scanning the covers. Uh, and what we've put online so far is householder schedule forms, because this is the very first census where the householders themselves have actually completed the census and these forms have been retained. So what we're looking at is colour images of, of your ancestors' handwriting um, with any mistakes they added to the form or additional information. Um, but we're still going to be scanning all, all the other bits of, uh, bits of the census so that uh, National Archives can, can put uh, the original in safe storage. Uh, so we'll be adding some, some more images that people will be able to go back online and, and have a look at those uh, for, for no additional charge. If, if they've already viewed a, a householder schedule, they'll be able to look at all the accompanying images as well. Oh, that's wonderful. And that was one of the things that really caught my eye when I worked with it was it appeared that there was an original signature there of my ancestor who had, um, yeah. I guess, helped filled out the form and had signed the bottom of it. That was yeah. awesome. Yeah. And if you sign the bottom of it, he'll have, he'll have completed the form as well because it, whoever signed the bottom of the form actually completed the form. So uh, um, you're seeing you know, exactly all the details that your ancestor uh, put in themselves 98 years ago. So it's uh, quite a thing. Well, exciting stuff. And again, if you would like to check out all of these amazing UK records, you can do that at findmypast.com. Deborah, thank you so much for uh, staying late today and talking with us here on the show. It was just uh, tremendous to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. With the economy constantly in the news and tax day upon us, Jim Beidler's article, Financial Aid, from the April 2006 issue of the magazine, is the ideal choice for this Best of Family Tree magazine segment. So I've invited Jim to the show to revisit this great article. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hello, Lisa. Hey, for anybody interested in learning more about their ancestors' financial situation, your article is jam-packed with terrific information. Now, my first question, of course, is if you had to only pick one type of record to review to get a sense of an ancestor's finances, or at least the type of record that you would start with, what would it be? Well, it's probably uh, the one for, for more people than any other group of um, records that would be helpful would be estate records, uh, because uh, often there are a lot of different documents uh, that can be helpful in uh, determining an ancestor's economic standing. 
What kinds of things would you learn from estate records? Well, uh, I mean, for, first of all, one one of the common documents is an estate inventory, uh, which outlines uh, what the uh, possessions of the deceased were and uh, how they were valued at the, at that time. Uh, also, uh, uh, part of those possessions would be uh, would be debts. Uh, you know, who who owed the uh, the deceased money. Uh, so so that can be a very valuable document. And of course, the the basic document, the will. You know, if an ancestor did uh, did write a will, uh, in addition to the uh, the names of the the people that he or she was leaving leaving the estate to. Uh, you know, may, it may describe their real estate. It may be, may uh, give a lot of insight into uh, into the individual. I think that's so true because not only are you getting a sense of the the numbers involved, but the people that they were interacting with in financial ways. Absolutely, and that and that that is something I, I in in um, not just this article, but in in other articles that I write that I I try to uh, impart to people is you've got to look at your ancestor in the context of his or her times. Uh, in, the, in the context of those times, uh, as far as what the uh, what the values of things were, uh, as far as what uh, what wages might have might have been then, uh, as far as even the the type of occupation they had and how that was was uh, valued uh, relative to today. For an example, uh, you know today we look at doctors and lawyers as uh, very high status, at least in terms of income. Uh, whereas you go back to the 19th century, they were merely uh, middle class. Uh, so, so you really do have to, uh, you know, put your particular ancestor in the context of those times. So we can't really look at those records and that information with the the glasses of today. We've got to go back and and figure out what it meant back then. Um, and, and even in terms of dollars, you had some interesting tools on there where you could convert the dollars to get a sense of, does that sound expensive or is it not that expensive? Exactly, because again, the, you know, the, the values that we put on, on certain things today are not necessarily what they uh, were put on in the past. As one example, farm animals, not that they are, are um, inexpensive today, per- perhaps, uh, but you go back to the 19th century and the 18th century, you know, they were looked upon not just as, you know, a kind of a production or stock, but also as transportation, also as as uh, helping with farm labor. Uh, so, so they were very valuable to uh, to individuals. So that would almost be the equivalent today of not only looking at a dairy cow, but the family car. Exactly. <laughs> or whatever, exactly. yeah. I have one, I have one ancestor's uh, uh, will where uh, he gives as the uh, kind of the birthright portion to his eldest son, he gives him my good wagon is what he designates. And oh. you know, I, I, I point out in some of my, my lectures that, well, that was that was like giving the family car to him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, something else that jumps out to me in this article is the timeline that you've included. Economic ups and downs have been around for a long time, haven't they? Yes, they certainly have, and, and uh, our... Our uh, recent uh, economic crisis of the of the last year, uh, in some ways, has has uh, broken through. Uh, since, since the Great Depression, uh, we really have not had any huge uh, downswings. I mean, yes, we've had recessions, and and some of them that that uh, that uh, were uh, were moderately steep. 
but he was nothing like the uh, the late 18th century and throughout the 19th century, uh, where when when it was a a downturn, you know, it's not just losing your job temporarily uh, or you know people getting tossed out of their houses, but but uh, you know absolutely being being reduced to to nothing. Uh, and those who would stay employed often would have large wage cuts because it was it was a real up and down boom and bust uh, cycle. Uh, where, whereas really, you know, in the in the in the last uh, seventy years since the Great Depression, it's been it's been you know with a, with a few bumps along the way, it's kind of been a gentle rise in wages and prices. Now, you know, what we're seeing, you know, right now in the in the housing market over the last couple of years, where where prices have actually plummeted, uh, you know, is, is really that first time since the Great Depression. But these last 70 years of our history are the exception, not the rule. You know, every, every just about every generation in the 19th century experienced some type of depression or panic, as they, they often call, called them, where uh, a good number of people would would either be wiped out or would be uh, would be put back to uh, to poverty. And I imagine again, if you look at the context that you were talking about, you know, our ancestors were so much more susceptible to those downturns than we are today. I mean, um, they couldn't just jump on a plane and move to another, you know, coast of the country or jump on um, the internet and go look up a new job. Mm-hmm. Um, they were so narrowly focused in their well, there, there, skills. there certainly was a lot less of a safety net. Yeah. On the other hand, there certainly was a greater sense of of family. Yeah. Uh, and 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 a kind of a community taking its taking care of its own. Uh, you did have you know those factors that kind of uh, you know kind of counterposed against that. But uh, but you you definitely had to to uh, you know to be reliant then on other family members or on the kind of the charity of the community. Exactly. Well, financial records, the the context of of what was going on at the time, all of these things will give you so much more insight into your ancestors. And Jim's article is a terrific place to start. Again, it's called Financial Aid. It's from the April 2006 issue of the magazine. If you're in need of a back issue, I'll have a link that will take you directly to where you can pick one up online. And Jim, thank you so much for for joining us. Fascinating stuff. I I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, uh, Lisa. It was was a pleasure uh, appearing on this podcast. Thanks so much for joining me for this April 2009 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis. That's at blog.familytreemagazine.com slash insider. Next, enter for your chance to win that Family Tree Passport to Europe CD that Allison told us about. You can email us at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. Include your name, your email address, the mailing address that you would want the CD sent to, and a topic that you would like to hear more about, either on the podcast or in the magazine. Send your emails in by April 30th, 2009, and you will be entered into the drawing. Then be sure and tune in to the May episode where we'll be announcing the winner. And get out your May 2009 issue of the magazine to read Maureen Taylor's article, 
called splitting hairs to gain more insight into the hairstyles your ancestors are sporting in those old photographs that you have. And if you're looking for British ancestors, be sure and check out findmypast.com. And finally, if you'd like to get Jim Beidler's great article on economic history called Financial Aid, you can order your copy of the April 2006 issue of the magazine from our website at familytreemagazine.com. You can order a print copy or you can get a digital download right from the website. I'll have all the links mentioned on today's show for you on the web page for this episode. And you can find us on the web at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. And of course, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please email me at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, if you haven't done so already, be sure and subscribe to the podcast for free through iTunes so that you can get each episode automatically downloaded when it's published. Uh, iTunes is free and you can download it from apple.com slash iTunes slash download. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I hope that you'll visit me at my website at genealogygems.tv, where you can listen to my free podcasts, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. And of course, both shows are available also through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.